welcome to Portico. It is so good to have you here this morning, and I know you got up early so you could hear me today. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I thought that was a good reason to get... Some of you I've never seen in the morning before. It's so good to see you here. It's like late afternoon crowd. We are so glad you're here. So delighted to have you come and join us today at Portico, and we're especially thrilled today to have Dr. Ravi Zacharias here. Many of you have followed him. I would say, for those of you that know his ministry, he has traveled and spoken for over 43 years. Uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries last year celebrated its 30th anniversary. And uh, when you consider all of the work that he has done, the one thing that I think strikes me most profoundly about this gentleman is the fact that whether you are a skeptic, a seeker, or a sincere follower of Jesus Christ, his voice is a trusted voice. He speaks with authority. He speaks with insight. And I want you to put your hands together this morning, give the best portico welcome we can give to Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Thank you. Thank you. Well, a very good morning to you. It's really an honor to be here and uh, share in this service. I'm grateful to Pastor Doug for hosting me and uh, only partially grateful to my friends, Dr. Kay and his very shy wife, Shoba, for putting pressure on me to come here. Uh, I was afraid my destiny would be threatened if I didn't comply. But I've also known Amitabh for a long time, from his days in Calcutta, so at least four friends here. That's pretty good, although this is a huge congregation. It's uh, been a brief visit to Toronto. I lived here for many, many years, uh, for 10 years in the 60s. And it was at a time where if you saw another Indian, you would cross the road to say hello, because it was such a rare sight. There were only 500 Indians in Toronto at that time. Today, I think there are 500 in the parking lot before you come in here. The population has so dramatically increased. If you shout Mr. Singh at the airport, I think 2,000 will turn around and say hi. What a change in this city, um, but I've always loved this city. My wife comes from here, and I met her here. We were married in 1972, so that's 43 years ago. Uh, during the time of Alexander the Great. So a lot of years have gone by since those years. Toronto is a home I love. My brothers and sisters all live here. My mother-in-law, who's 95, and I had the privilege of having dinner with her last night. So, Pastor Doug, thank you for having me, and uh, really my honor to be with you. You know, there are many, many tough questions in life. So our work is in apologetics. We answer a lot of questions. And some years ago, I had just flown in from Bangkok to uh, Newark to connect to Atlanta, where we now live. And one of those long 13 or 14-hour flights where you look like your passport picture after you get off the plane. So I got off the plane, and I was heading to my gate, and I saw a lady at the end there because I looked at the marquee, and it set a different flight to what I was looking for. So I said to her, excuse me, ma'am, is this flight going to where it says out there, or is it going to Atlanta? She said, it's going to Atlanta. I said, good, that's good to know. So I left to go and get myself a cup of coffee, and I heard the patter of feet behind me. And uh, it was this lady, and she tapped me on my shoulder. She said, excuse me, are you Ravi Zacharias? I said, I'm afraid so, yes. And then she said, that's amazing. I didn't think you had questions as well. (laughs) 
I'm not making up that story. It's a true story. Questions. We're haunted by them. Some years ago, there was a beautiful commercial on television. It flashed a question on the screen. How old is the universe? Then another question. And then another question. Then questions like, do you like pizza? And just questions cluttering the screen till it turned dark and the silhouette of a motorbike emerged on the screen and it said, Yamaha. It may not be the answer, but at least it's not another question. You have questions. I do too. There's a difference between a question and a doubt. A question seeks clarification. The prophets did this all the time. You've got Habakkuk saying, How long must I cry out to you and you will not answer? You've got uh, questions like uh, David saying, which he knows rhetorically what the answer is. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Questions in search of clarity. Sort of belief in terms of pursuit and growing with that knowledge. You've got Jeremiah with a plurality of questions because he was the prophet who mourned and wept a long time over what he saw happening. A doubt many times surfaces when you don't believe what you claim to believe or you're not sure if you really believe it or ought to believe it. There's a difference between a question and a doubt. And you see three questions raised in the passage of Scripture that I'm going to read for you from Second Chronicles 20. And my message is entitled in a question form, Who are you, God? Who is God? We use that term so often. I'll never forget years ago when uh, I was speaking at the Center for Geopolitical Strategy in Moscow. Except for one cadet out there, I'm sorry, not the Center for Geopolitical Strategy, that was later on in the day. The first message was at the Lenin Military Academy. There was only one cadet there who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The rest of them were all atheists. And while I was speaking, one of them was giving me the choke sign. You get used to that. So you just look in a different direction and keep talking. And as soon as I finished, I knew the gentleman who was hostile would have the first question. And he sprang up to his feet and he said this, I'll never forget for a moment, feeling the dryness in my throat with the shock of it. He looked at me and said, God, you've been talking about God for 45 minutes. What do you mean? What is God? Who is God? And I could tell he was angry as one who had been committed to the atheistic worldview. So I muttered a quick prayer. I said, God, give me my response. And I noticed with Jesus, before he answered most of his questioners, he would question the questioner. Because when you question the questioner, you do two things. You determine the entry point of the discussion and you force the questioner to open up within their own assumptions. Follow what I'm saying? You force the questioner to open up within their own assumptions. Because if a person talks about the question of evil, they assume there's the reality of good. If they talk about the reality of good, 
They assume goodness can be defined by some objective means of definition, which means they almost assume God in order to question the existence of God. So he says, what do you mean God? So I said, I'll be happy to answer your question if you answer mine. Are you an atheist? He said, yes. I said, what is it you're denying? What is it you're denying? An atheist says, no God. God doesn't exist. So if you're an atheist, you're denying the existence of God. What is it you're denying? It looked like I sort of hit him in the sternum. Because atheistic belief brings the concept of the theism, of theism or the theos, in the very denial. So there is some statement they are making of the non-existence of an infinite uncreated, uncontingent being. Who is God? There are three questions in this brief prayer in Second Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat is facing a huge army, and he doesn't know whether he's got all the resources to contend with this army. And so he starts to pray. Someone has said there are no atheists in foxholes. When Napoleon's army was surrounding Moscow... What did the czar do? He was not a very comfortable believer in God. But when the spires of Moscow were burning, he found himself in church, flat on his face before God. When the problem was in um, uh, the Philippines some years ago in the 80s, was it 1986 or something, as Marcos's screws were being tightened and tightened on the people, and then a sort of a peaceful revolution took place, There were 800 soldiers at a major intersection in Manila, and the leader was a man by the name of General Isleta. He personally told me that as he had these 800 soldiers in front of him, and he heard the whirring of planes and of helicopters buzzing over him, sent by Marcos, General Isleta said, I did the only thing I knew was the most reasonable to do. I opened my Bible to Psalm 91, and started to read it to the soldiers and pray and cry out to God. They heard one plane descending onto the compound, and he defected, and then two, and then three, and then four. They all defected, and the peaceful revolution was underway. In the midst of a horrific threat, even skeptics will cry out in prayer. This man was not a skeptic. Notice how theologically rigorous his prayer is. When you can combine passion with theological integrity, you have found the bridge from the head to the heart. And here it is as Jehoshaphat is praying. In verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Look at verse 12. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And towards the latter part of 1215, God says, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. The battle is not yours, but God's. Three questions. Are you not? Did you not? 
will you not? The response of God, don't be afraid. This is not your battle. This is mine. But I want to look at those three questions and then see if we can find an answer to who God is. If you were to take a blank sheet of paper and begin with these words, are you not describing God? How would you fill in the blanks? What would you say is your conclusion from your study and your knowledge or your experience of God? How would you fill in the question if somebody said to you, who is God? What are you talking about? It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon in one of his commentaries on Malachi who said this, the proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. It is the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of this great God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with. In them, in them we feel a kind of self-contentment and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its sight, we turn away from the thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. Almost any subject that you specialize in you could write a lot about that. But when you come to the person and the being of God, the moment you start penning down your thoughts, a strange sense of limitation comes upon you and comes upon me. That's why even the great neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth, when he was asked after all of his volumes on dogmatics, what was it that he really could say without any question about this being that he'd studied over all these years. Now, Bart's theology is not necessarily that which you and I with evangel as evangelicals would be comfortable with, but his answer was fascinating. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. After all of the volumes of his writing, that was the summary statement he made. In the year 1952, Encyclopedia Britannica put out its 54-volume set called The Great Books of the Western World. I remember when I was a young student studying philosophy at that time, that was a set I really wanted to own, but it was quite pricey. And I'd walk past the bookstores in New York seeing when they would come on sale or when I could buy a, new, a used set. And I finally was able to afford one and get it. 54 volumes. It still sits at the top shelf of my books back home where we live. 54 volumes. This is how they position it out. The first two volumes are called the syntopicon. It's a synthesis of topics that are addressed in the other 52 volumes that the great Western writers have addressed. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Augustine, Gibbon, Aquinas, all of the great thinkers, what they've said on particular subjects. And so there are individual essays on the great themes. And at the end of each essay is a long set of footnotes on what volume to turn to if you want to know what one great writer has said about the theme. 
So if you want to know what Augustine has said on history, you'll read the essay on history, and at the bottom in the footnotes, you'd look for Augustine, turn to volume 18, and find out what Augustine has said on history on that particular page. The longest essay is on God. The longest essay in that series of books is on God. And then footnote after footnote after footnote after footnote. Mortimer Adler, a Jewish legal thinker who is a latecomer to Jesus Christ, was being interviewed years ago by Larry King. And Larry King looked at him and said, Mr. Adler, why is the longest essay on God? I've looked at those books. God is a theme that has the most number of pages to it. Mortimer Adler, without being uh, somehow daunted by the question, he said, Larry, the answer is simple. More consequences for your life follow from this one theme than any other theme you can think of. More consequences of your life follow from your belief or disbelief in God than anything else you you can think of. What are we at war with or at discontent with in our culture, in our times? All the issues that we come up with are symptomatic. What lies beneath it is who God is and what he wants from us. That is foundational. Your life and my life, we are governed by our belief in God and what God has us do or think whether it's your marriage, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's your finances, whether it's your habits, whether it's your career goals, all of these come under your knowledge and your commitment to God. That's why Spurgeon says is the greatest theme of all themes. And so I look at these three questions very quickly and I say to you, what is it that we must know about God? The first question he says is, are you not? How have philosophers answered this? Some years ago, Life magazine had as its lead story in December, who is God? On the cover was a picture of the stars and the cosmic scene and so on, in big white letters, who is God? I picked it up off the stands and I started to read it. The first testimonial was from an older woman who was dying of cancer. She talked about how she came to know Jesus Christ as a younger woman and over all the years had followed him. And now in her waning years, dying of cancer, she found his presence so enriching and so reassuring and was eagerly looking forward to meeting her Savior face to face. It's a beautiful testimony, just in a couple of paragraphs. The next one was a minister who'd lived a duplicitous life, contracted AIDS. And in his testimony, he said this. He said, you know... I preached, I taught, I did all that, but behind the scenes I was leading a double life. He said, it ultimately caught up with me and destroyed me. He said, but here I am now, racked with AIDS and my body falling apart, and more than ever I have realized the grace of our Savior, the forgiveness of our Savior, and what he has taught me even in these years of debilitation. One testimony after another. Then came the editor who didn't believe that God was a person, but God was just an energy or a power. And one after another, that story started to change. What do you conclude at the end of that? Experience can be an important indicator of who God is, but it is not the final arbiter 
of who God really is. Because your experience can oftentimes be clouded out or crowded out by your prejudices or by your dispositions or by what you actually would like to believe without it being true at the same time. So here's what I'm saying to you. Experience is critical. I'm not denying that, but it cannot be the final interpreter of who God is because experiences conflict. If you take a Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Christian sitting around a table and you start discussing the experience of God, you will come up with radically different notions. And so you have to go something beyond that to that which can be objectively verified. So you go from mere experience and you go on then to revelation. In the Christian worldview and all the other religious worldviews, you have so-called claims to revelation. You have it in the Judeo-Christian worldview. You have four terms that describe God. You see God as holy. You see God as sovereign. You see God as omniscient. You see God as immutable. God is holy, distant, distance. God is immutable. He's unchanging, indestructible. God is omniscient. He, he, he knows all there is to know. And at the same time, this God is sovereign. He oversees everything. He is the only entity in existence, the reason for whose existence is in himself. Everyone in existence has the reason for their existence outside of themselves. God is uncaused. It is impossible for God not to be. God necessarily exists at all times. And so you go through the notion of sovereignty, immutability, omniscience, and holiness. But then you take one sudden moment and you say, God is sovereign. It's wonderful to know when you're on the high seas and being challenged that God will be in control. But then something suddenly goes wrong. Last night I was talking to my children in Atlanta. And being July 4th, they were celebrating a barbecue and so on. And so I was talking to my son, Nathan. I said, how did it go? He said, well, we had an accident, Dad. I said, what happened? His little daughter, Ava, is uh, about to turn two. And he was frying something in a frying pan on the stove. And she came and wanted to be picked up and inadvertently turned down to pick her up. And that frying pan moved with his hand at the same time and a whole amount of hot fat just splashed out of there and onto her face. He was stunned at what happened so quickly. And my daughter Naomi said, Dad, I just stood there watching the tears rolling down Nathan's face. He was the father. He's the father, of course. And to see that at his hand something like this had happened but I spoke to him again about 10.30 p.m., and he said, Dad, we came back from the hospital, and of course, as soon as it happened, I phoned emergency, and they said, quickly, just put her under a shower of hot water, or wash all the fat away right away quickly. And he said, Dad, you know what's amazing? Even around her eye, that hot uh, frying pan, the fat had just flashed onto her on the eye. He said, but Dad, miraculously, not a single drop went into the eye. And the doctor attended to her and uh, told them that the burns were minimal. He didn't expect any lasting scarring, that she would be fine. 
and gave some ointment and this and that. He said, but Monday just change. Just take it to the burn unit, get doubly certain. He said, but I'm confident that somehow she was well protected. Now, is it distinctly possible in life that when something like this happened, God puts his hand out and sovereignly protects that little one? Anyone who's had a little child knows that without a sovereign grace of God, you would never have made it, leave alone the child. I'm now a grandfather, but I won't tell you too much because Winston Churchill was once asked by a corporal, have I ever told you about my grandchildren? And Churchill said, no, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. But you watch those little ones, every turn, every run, every bend around the corner, and you grow up recognizing there's a sovereign God in control of your life. I've seen it in my own life. At the age of 17 in Delhi, on a bed of suicide, a Bible was brought to me. I never asked for it. As far as I know, I'd never cracked it open to read one. And yet God, in his sovereign grace, found somebody to bring that Bible into my room so that I would hear of the saving grace of Jesus Christ and committed my life to him as a young teen. God is sovereign. And when daunting situations come, it is comforting to know that he will not take you through anything, but that he, like the grand weaver, is holding the threads to bring the ultimate design of your life. But at the same time, when things happen contrary to what you wish they were, you question whether God is really sovereign. How could he allow this to happen? Is he sovereign over our nations right now? All the decisions seem to be going in the wrong way. And so experience leaves you not 100% certain. The revelation that comes points you in the direction of truth, but still leaves a big gap. The Apostle Paul understood this well. And he was trying to deal with people who had doctrinal ideas and philosophical ideas. He was a citizen of Rome. He was a Greek in terms of his studies. He was a Hebrew in terms of his birth, a Hebrew by birth, a citizen of Rome, and Greek had poured into his mind as he was a student at Tarsus. You see the three great cultures converging into his consciousness. This man stopped on the Damascus Road, encountered by Jesus Christ. They did not know at that time, the disciples, when they put him over the basket and lowered him over the wall, in Damascus, that this was the one who was going to write one-third of the New Testament. So writing to the church at Corinth, this man from the Hebrew and the Greek and the Roman background says this, God who caused the light to shine out of darkness. And you must remember why he's saying this. For the Hebrews, the quintessential expression of God was light. For the Greeks, it was knowledge. For the Romans, it was glory, light, knowledge, glory, the three great cultures. He says, God, who caused the light to shine out of darkness, has caused his light to shine in our hearts, to give to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus the Lord. That was the culminating expression. God, who at diverse manners and at sundry times has spoken to us through the prophets, in the last days has spoken to us through the Son. In the person of Jesus Christ, you see that quintessential expression of who God is. You know, when I, when I lived in Delhi, we had one of our servants' name was Aramagam. Anyone here who knows Tamil? Aramagam literally means six faces. Aramagam had never been to see a movie. So one Sunday, my mother gave him some money to go and see a movie for the first time. He put on his fineries, polished his shoes, and marched off to see the first movie he had ever seen. When he came back, we were waiting. Aramagam, how did it go? How did it go? He said, oh, yo, 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 yo. He said, I made a big mistake. He said, I'd never been into this one, so I bought the ticket and I walked into one of the doors and it was dark, I was late, and I was looking at a wall and all I saw was holes in the wall with beams coming out of there. I said, why have I paid money to see beams coming out of a wall? He says, still I could hear voices and I turned around and looked at the screen and I saw faces and I let out a big shout and the usher came and grabbed me and told me to be quiet and found my seat and sat me down. Imagine if he'd spent the whole time looking at the beams and coming back saying, yeah, it was okay, you know, just some beams coming out of holes in the wall, that was all I saw. So many of the world's religions and views are looking at the beams. When you turn and look at the screen, you see the face on which those beams ultimately shine. And the Bible tells us that shining face is the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Thomas, who took the gospel to India, fell on his knees and said, Ho kurios mu, ho theos mu, my Lord, my God. That's why Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why 11 out of the 12 disciples were willing to die a martyr's death. But I want to take you to a garden and see this face bowed down before a holy father in prayer because he's about to face the cross and you see him in prayer. And what does he say three times in that prayer? Holy Father, Holy Father, Holy Father. Who is God? God is your Holy Father. I have a friend in Atlanta, his name is McKittrick. In 1989, when he was only 12 years old, he went to Highlands, North Carolina with his father, Greg Simmons. Greg and Christy Simmons have five children. McKittrick was the oldest, 12, and the youngest was a babe in arms. So Greg took the oldest four, McKittrick, down, left the babe in arms with his wife, Christy, went to Highlands, because the children wanted to see the retirement property that he'd bought. Greg, the father, was only 41 at that time, a big businessman in Toronto and very well known. He also called a friend of his and that friend's son. So here you had it, you know, the seven of these drive from Atlanta to Highlands, and they're looking at the property, and then McKittrick said, Dad, can you take us to the waterfall? It's so beautiful on our property. I want to see the waterfall. So the father, Greg, takes all of them over towards the waterfall, puts his arm out, and he says, you know what? 
I've never been this close, so you all wait here. I'll see how close I can get and then bring you all up there. So Greg walks over, gets closer and closer, takes one step too many, and he comes cartwheeling down a quarter of a mile to his death. He was 41 years old. And his four children, his friend and son, watched this happening in a state of shock. The grandparents, when I was visiting them, showed me the letter that 12-year-old McKittrick wrote to some friends, wrote to some friends, the Whelans. Listen to this letter. Dear Miss Whelan, you don't know how much your family helped produce my father. He admired your husband and you a lot. He would talk about how good your faith was with God. He tried to be as generous as you all have been to the church and many other things. Since his death, true friends have been revealed. Your family is at the top of our list. You're a great resource, or you're a great source of energy for my mother and I. My father loved you all very much and was always trying to be like you. My father was like one of the three men in the Bible who was given talents by Jesus. Remember, one of them went out and invested them and multiplied them. One took some stock that failed and came out with nothing. The last one buried them and did nothing with them. All three returned in a few days, and the Lord was pleased with the two who had tried to multiply them. But with the third man who had come back with the same amount, having tried nothing, the Lord was disappointed because he didn't even try. My father tried and multiplied. Oftentimes he lost, but he was always trying to please the Lord. He got a lot of that from you, Ms. Whelan. My daddy was a risk taker. That's how he was. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning it was God. That was the most important thing to my dad. And he was a risk taker because of his trust in God. He was so brilliant and successful. No one will understand how or why my daddy fell into the waterfall. Please do yourself a favor and don't even try to figure it out. My daddy died for his children. He was making sure it was safe for us to come up. You may hear different things, but only six people saw it, and only three understand or understood what really happened that day. I am one of those. My mom has lost her treasure chest, her husband. Most of the others have lost Greg. You have lost your best friend. My grandparents have lost their son. Forrest, John, and Barbara have lost their brother. But Ms. Wieland, it is really different for me, totally different for me. He was my best friend and my idol. When I got my last glimpse of him falling down the falls, I lost my most prized man on earth. He was my father, my one and only dad. I had a dream three nights ago, but it wasn't a dream. My daddy's all right. He told me himself, thank you for being a true friend. I love you a lot, McKittrick. Twelve years old. I was in Thailand when 9-11 hit. My son was a student in Indiana at the university. He phoned me and he said, Dad, come home. We need you. I'd barely known what had happened. And I took a flight. It took me days to get back because the planes were all jam-packed, especially with those of the bereaved from the family. A son at the age of a university student wanted his father to be home for even something that didn't directly affect the family. Look at what's happened in our culture today. Where are the fathers? Where are the dads? So many sell out to the corporate world. 
And so many young men do not know how to be gentlemen anymore because they've never seen a father at home with the combination of strength and gentleness. Holy Father. Holy is distant, separate. Father is near and dear. In the Hindi language, the word for father is pita. The word for mother is mata. But you don't call your father pita. You don't call your mother mata. You say pita ji, mata ji. Ji is the term for reverence. It's like saying daddy sir, mummy madam. And coming to God and saying holy father. Who is God? He's your holy father. Are you not? Secondly and quickly, did you not? And I'll race through this. Did you not? He said, did you not rescue us in the past? This is where experience really comes in. You have to know God in your personal experience. There has to come that moment in your life where you make that commitment and you take that step of saying, I need you. I trust in you. Enter into my life. You are my Lord and my Savior, Jesus. I want you. I commit myself to you. A few weeks ago, I was in Cluj, Romania. There were 10,000 in the audience. At the invitation, hundreds of them come forward, including the leading official of the entire province. And my colleague there, Vlad, said, I'd never seen anything like this in my lifetime in Romania. And to watch them coming and making that commitment, almost like a waterfall of people, you stand there as a minister and the tears running down your own face because you know lives are being changed and lives are being transformed with that personal commitment to Jesus Christ. I'll give you a quick illustration and move to my final thought and application. Some years ago, Reader's Digest had the story called It Happened on the Brooklyn Subway. It's about a man called Marcel Sternberger who gets into a train he'd never been on before because he'd gone to visit a sick friend. And as he gets in, he sees a man reading a Hungarian newspaper and Marcel Sternberg, a new Hungarian. So he was trying to find a seat and sat down next to him. It just happened that a person got up from there and so Marcel sat next to him. But he was crowded like this, so he started reading the newspaper. And he said, what are you doing? Looking for a job? You're on the classifieds. He said, no, sir, I'm looking for my wife. He said, looking for your wife? He said, yes. I used to live in Debrecen in Hungary. Years ago when the Germans came in and took a hold of the people there. Many of them went into Auschwitz. I was in Russia burying the German dead out there. When I came back, my house was gone, ransacked. It was all gone. And I'm missing my, I was missing my wife. And I'm hoping somehow she was rescued by the Allies. And I'm starting here in America to look for her, see if she's here. So Marcel Sternberger thought, you know, I've heard this story somewhere before. And he remembered being at a party some time back where he was sitting next to a woman who said she was from Debrecen. Her husband had been taken away to bury the German dead in Russia. She was rescued by the Allies and brought here. And he, he and she struck up a good conversation and he took her name and phone number and said, you know, maybe some evening I'll just come out, take you out for dinner and so on. And he had her number in the wallet. So he looked at the man and he said, what was your wife's name? The man said, my wife's name was Maria Paskin. So Sternberger pulls out his wallet, pulls out the piece of paper, and sure enough, it is Maria Paskin with the phone number. Next station, he says, sir, get off this train with me. I want to make a telephone call for you. I can't tell you why. They get off, go to the phone booth, and Sternberger dials the number, and he looks at her, and looks at the phone, and he says, as the phone is picked up, saying, Maria, do you remember me, Marcel Sternberger? 
She said, yes, I do. He said, Maria, what was your husband's name? She said, my husband's name was Bella Paskin. And the man had already checked this gentleman's name was Bella Paskin. He says, Maria, you're about to witness the greatest miracle of your life. Just hold on for a moment. And he took the receiver and gave it to this man. And he said, here's some money for you. You will need it for a taxi. God bless you, sir. And he left. The man picks up the phone and he finds out it's his wife. And he says, Maria, 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 I can't believe it. The story ends in Reader's Digest with these words. And it says this by the writer. Skeptical persons would no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance, but was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit a sick friend and take a subway line he'd never been on before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance, or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Are you not? Did you not? And I just close with this. Will you not? Will you not trust him? The battle is his. On the eve of the great war in 1939, King George VI spoke to the nation and he said this, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Are you not? Did you not? Will you not? The God who was and is and who will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God bless you.